the most important event in the history of civilization since Jesus Christ was the conversion of a Jew to Christianity. The most important event since Jesus Christ. He has been described in these words, short, stooped, bow-legged, bald, hooked, nose, and full of grace. Saint Paul. His writings have saved the world. When the church went down into the abyss of the dark ages, God used the writings of this converted Jew to save the Christian church and also to save the world. From the great Protestant Reformation came the birth of the democracies. You say, were there not democracies before Protestantism? No, there were none. There was a church dictatorship. There was the Spanish Inquisition. There was the reign of terror. But with the Reformation that was based on the writings of Paul, the converted Jew, from these writings came the Reformation and from the Reformation came the birth of the great democracies, the collapse of intolerance and the, the birth of great nations like the United States of America. It all happened because of the writings of St. Paul. Because St. Paul spoke about freedom at liberty, these tremendous concepts and emphasized the importance of the individual. So listen again, short, stooped, bow-legged, bald, hooked nose, and full of grace. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. The greatest personality in the history of the world since our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, written by Paul, of course, chapter 3. And I want you please to notice these wonderful words. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he describes his early years. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. The Bible says Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was a Jew of the Jews, the Bible says he was the very ultimate Jew because he was a Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? 
We've all heard of the Maccabees, and we've all heard of Antiochus Epiphanes who came into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple, and how the Maccabees, a group of zealous Jews, withstood Antiochus Epiphanes and drove him out. And from this period of time came these, these people who were so earnest and so sincere and wanted to do everything for God. They were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the best of the best. The Pharisees who stood against Antiochus Epiphanes and who stood against the corrupting influence of the Greeks through Hellenization were the people above all other people in the world who defended the sacredness of the scriptures. They were the fundamentalists of their day. They were people who upheld the holy law of God. They said, all these things have come upon us because the people broke the law of God. And so they taught the keeping of the law of God. They had 1,521 different laws to safeguard the keeping of the seventh day Sabbath. They did this out of a zeal for the glory of God. They were tremendous missionaries. Our Lord said they would compass sea and land to make one proselyte. They were evangelistic to the core because they wanted to see the kingdom of God come. They were also perfectionists. They believed that if Israel could only be led to keep the holy law of God by the power of God living in them just for a day or so the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would be revealed therefore they believed that the coming of the Messiah himself was dependent upon their righteousness through the power of God they were Adventists they believed in the advent we are all adventists most christians are adventists they believed in the advent the coming of the messiah and they prayed daily several times a day that the messiah might come they were the very best of the best they had a hierarchy the hierarchy was composed of the sanhedrin and all of these holy and wise men who had one goal and that was to lead the people away from the world and to God and to keep the commandments of God. They had a scholar, famous, his name was Gamaliel. The Bible tells us that he was the teacher of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was more than just a Hebrew, he was also a Roman citizen by birth. He could not be flogged and he could not be crucified. Most likely his father had won Roman citizenship through some illustrious deed and thus his son was also a Roman. Paul, which was his Gentile name, Saul was the Hebrew name, was a rising star. There is some evidence that this young man was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
This is interesting because one could not become a member of the Sanhedrin unless he were a married person. And so there is some good evidence that Paul or Saul of the tribe of Benjamin was a married man, a rising star, tremendous mind, a member of the Sanhedrin. He considered Jesus to be an impostor. Some years ago, I went down to the Western Wall, which has been called for many years, the Whaling Wall, though today we call it the Western Wall, it is more appropriate. And I spoke there to some of the rabbis just as the Sabbath was coming in. I wanted to find out exactly what they thought about Jesus. And I said to them, would you please tell me, Rabbi, what is your opinion of, of Jesus? And very quickly they said to me, he is a fraud and he is an impostor. Paul believed with great sincerity that Jesus was an impostor. He believed that Jesus was going to overthrow everything that they had worked for. He was going to overthrow the hierarchy and the bureaucracy and threaten the status quo of the priests and the scribes and the elders. And therefore, because Paul loved his church, he decided that every person who followed Jesus ought to be eliminated. The Bible talks about a young man who was stoned to death. He was a great preacher of the word of God. He was one of the first leaders in the church and his name was Stephen. And after preaching this powerful sermon, the Jewish people became so angry at him because he said, you received the law of God, but none of you have ever kept the law of God. And you've crucified the Messiah that they took this young firebrand and they stoned him to death. And as they were stoning him to death, the Bible says, the people who were casting the stones at this young man as he was bleeding to death on the ground because of his faith in Jesus, the Bible says they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul, who was consenting unto his death. The Bible says, breathing out murderous threats. This young firebrand, because here comes another firebrand, Paul or Saul, this man with a tremendous mind who is a, a genius, who is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He goes to the high priest and he says, give me letters so I can go to Damascus and I will find any person who follows Jesus and I will have those people thrown into prison or better still, I'll have them stoned to death. And so he starts on the, and the priest, of course, the high priest is only too glad to accommodate him. And Saul of Tarsus, because that is where he was born, in the town of Tarsus, a cosmopolitan place, a place that was filled with all types of different nationalities. 
he sets out on a week's journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. And as he is coming to the city of Damascus, breathing out threats and hatred against Jesus and the disciples, all of a sudden he is blinded by a tremendous light that is brighter than the sun. And he's thrown to the ground and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. That moment was the greatest moment, the most important event in the history of the world since Jesus. Because in that moment when he saw Christ, Saul was converted to Christianity. And he became the greatest writer, the greatest preacher, the greatest theologian, the greatest thinker, the greatest scholar, the greatest evangelist since Jesus. And his writings saved the world in the dark ages. And because of his writings, America is America and is not in the dark ages. If Paul had not been converted at that time in history, there would never have been a reformation. And if there had never been a reformation, there would have been a continuation of the dark ages and you would have been sitting here. No, you wouldn't have been in church today, but you would have been walking the streets of this land with bare feet. And the women would have been still working in the fields or washing their clothes in the gutters. And there would have been a great church ruling over America and there would have been no freedom of speech and no freedom of religion. There would have been no Congress. There would have been a dark age. Because this man was converted as he was about to go into Damascus. Because as he went into Damascus, he had more than a vision. He saw Christ. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 8 and verses 3 to 18. I'd like you to take your Bibles, please, all of you. Book of Acts chapter 9 and verse 3 and onwards. Acts chapter 9 and verse 3 and onwards. A great story. Please take your Bibles and notice it. You can put down the church bulletins, dear friends. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. 
The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The Bible says he was a chosen vessel. Listen carefully to this truth. There is nothing too hard for God to do. If God my beloved friends, can take the life of the biggest Pharisee and a man whose hands were stained with the blood of the saints and turn that person into the greatest evangelist and the greatest preacher, I say to you today, there is nothing too hard for him to do. And therefore, we should never, never, never give up on people and say, that person is a hopeless case. Because there are no hopeless cases as far as God is concerned. Nothing is too hard, and there is hope for all. Would you please notice with me his zeal for Jesus? Because this man was destined to turn the world upside down. Yesterday, as I was studying, and during the week as I was studying the life of this man, I will freely confess to you that I felt overcome. I said to Beverly last night at 8.30 when I hadn't even got the sermon out. I couldn't get it out. She said, what's wrong? I said, it's too much. It's overwhelming. What way is it overwhelming? Here's a man who was a Pharisee, a hater of Jesus. He's converted. He finds Christ. And then you read, I said to Rick Eislaven, who was our television director today, I said, it's very difficult, Rick, to talk about this subject because there is so much. I think of the, of the missionary journeys. 
I think of the towns he went to. I think of the preaching of the beatings, the floggings, the fact that he was shipwrecked. One man against the world. He set out and we sometimes wonder, what can we do for God? I was reading one commentator last night and he said, three men were walking over this Roman bridge. There was Saul or Paul and there was a young man by the name of Mark and there was Barnabas. And there they set out to cross over this bridge and they were going to go into the world. Who was going to supply their wages? Nobody was going to pay their wages. Who was going to prepare their meals? Nobody was going to prepare their meals. Did they have a budget to run an evangelistic campaign? There were, there were no budgets. And yet, these men, led by Paul, and he was the one who stayed to the end because Mark, when he found that the going was tough, he found that he couldn't keep going. And Mark went back. Later on, he was redeemed by the grace of God and became a supporter of the gospel work. But it was basically Paul against the world, going into town after town after town and going there unaided and preaching the gospel and raising up congregations in a hostile environment. I was reading through the book of Acts and the book of Acts is really the story of St. Paul. Now you've got the other apostles in there. You've got Peter in there and some of the others. But basically the book of Acts is about this man, Paul, and his preaching. When I thought about it, I was amazed at what God can do through a man who has seen Christ. And a man who is dedicated to God. And a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice just an example of his ministry. Only an example. Look at Acts chapter 13. This is only an example. And who is sufficient to preach these things about such a person? Acts chapter 13 and verse 42 and onwards. Acts 13 and verse 42 and onwards. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. 
So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. It is only one tiny little illustration of what this man was doing for God. Then a vision came and the Lord said to him, I want you to go over to this place, go over to Macedonia. And he goes to Macedonia and he preaches the word of God. And with his friend, he is thrown into prison. You and I sitting here in this comfortable church cannot appreciate this. I cannot appreciate it. Thrown into a filthy prison. He was beaten. The Bible says he was beaten over and over again. That is why some commentators say the tradition is that he was stooped. He was stooped from being beaten. And here he is in this filthy prison at his feet are in the stocks. And he's been tortured. And he's bleeding. And the Bible says around midnight he and his companions started to sing hymns. They're praising God. They're singing hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. They're praising God and God sends an earthquake. And the jailer comes in. He thinks everybody has run away. Paul says, don't, you don't need to worry. We haven't gone. We're here. We're not going anywhere. Then Paul preaches the word of God to him. Preaches the word of God. Preaches right through the night. And then baptizes him. Baptizes his family. Why? I want to say to the church today, I want to say to the elders of the church, I want to say to the, the presidents of the church, why today are we so caught up with secondary matters? Why are we? I always thought this told me what Christianity was about. Well, maybe I've been wrong. Because if this is Christianity, what about us? Here is a zeal for God. A zeal for God that will endure persecutions. We have, pardon my saying this, but we have come to the time today we say, well, I may go to church today, I don't know. Bit tired. Bit tired. I don't feel like it today. I might read my Bible today. It is because, my friend, we don't have what is over here. We don't have this. We don't have this. But here is a man that has a burning compulsion to preach Christ. And he's beaten up and he's kicked. And he's the greatest man that the world has seen since Jesus. And he believes that the most important thing that a preacher can do is to preach the gospel. Not to sit be I just pity those in administrative positions. We need administrators, not as many as we have, but we need administrators to administer to tell everybody else what they ought to do. We need those people. We need, but remember, not all administrators are leaders and not all leaders are administrators. You've got to remember that. 
not all administrators are leaders, and not all leaders are administrators, as Bill Hybel says, because he's talking about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 on spiritual gifts. But here we see the purpose of the church and the purpose of the ministry. And that is the preaching of the gospel and the going into all the world into difficult places. His influence. The Bible says he had converts in Caesar's household. The Bible tells us that he raised up churches everywhere around the Roman Empire. And he did it without the support of a conference, without the support of a congregation, without the support of a wife, but he did it by the power of God. Would you come to 2 Corinthians 11? In spite of difficulties, talk about difficulties. You know, it makes me ashamed when I ever complain. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and onwards. Oh, my friend, we need a Holy Ghost revival in our churches. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 39 lashes. Does anybody know what that's talking about? 39 lashes? It's a whip. And most likely it's got little bits of lead on the end. 39 of those out of mercy. They said you can't do it 40 times. So he had 200 lashes. Minus five. People say, this man is a fanatic. This man, we are not like this man. Absolutely we're not. But he's not a fanatic. He's a child of God. And because he has a child of God, nothing is going to stop him from fulfilling what God has called him to do. Nothing's going to stop him. So he's lashed five times. He's a preacher of the gospel. He's not sort of a guy that's dressed up in a clerical robe or anything like that. Not a sort of a guy standing in a nice church like this with a nice carpet and a nice congregation. He's a man who's preaching the gospel where it's dangerous. I hear people get upset. They say, the church doesn't recognize me. I don't get enough recognition. Oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> Have you had 39 lashes five times from the brethren? Count your blessings. That may be coming. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Anybody here been stoned? Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. Anybody here been shipwrecked? I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brethren. 
I guess that was about the worst to take. The traitors within. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who was weak? And I do not feel weak. Of course he felt weak. But he did these things because he had seen Christ. There's only one thing that can give you the capacity to serve God. There's only one thing, my friend, that can wake the church out of this stupor, the Laodicean condition, the lukewarmness, the coldness that afflicts us. And that is the vision of Christ. He saw Christ on the Damascus road. He said, on many occasions, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw Christ on the cross. He saw the Son of God dying for his sins. And because he had seen it all, it drove him. Are you driven for Christ? The love of Christ constrains us. It doesn't say restrains us. It says constrains us and drives us on. Are you driven on for God? Or is your religion just so laid back that you come to church and you think you've done God a good turn? Five times lashed. He was like a blazing meteor across the night sky. Yeah, stooped, bow-legged, bent, bald, hook-nosed, and full of grace. What about you, my friend? Are you full of grace? It is the grace of God that drives a man to do extraordinary things. What did he teach? He was the foremost exponent in the history of the church of the everlasting gospel. Not all gospels are the same. There are counterfeit gospels. The Pharisees had a counterfeit gospel, but not Paul. He received it by revelation from God. Notice Romans 1, 16 and 17. He talks about the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Why was this gospel so important for the church in later years? This subject is the best kept secret 
in North America. The great church of the dark ages that brought the world down into the abyss believed they taught the gospel. And they taught the gospel was the grace of God that enabled a person to so copy Jesus Christ that ultimately he would be another little Jesus Christ. And thus the book, The Imitation of the Life, Life of Christ by the great Catholic scholar Thomas Akempis. And this doctrine almost buried the church until a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther turned to the writings of St. Paul and discovered that the righteousness of God is a free gift to the repenting sinner and that you can never earn it. You see? That is by grace alone and by faith alone. Not by grace plus faith plus good works. Grace alone, faith alone became the cry of the Reformation. Where did they find it? In Romans. But now a righteousness from God credited to the sinner's account, not because he is good enough, but because Jesus is good enough. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that saves. That is the gospel that awakens the church. That is the gospel that drove Paul out into the cold, harsh, hard, persecuting world. That is the gospel that motivates people to become evangelists in the church, either ordained or unordained. It is, it is that gospel that drives people to obey God's holy law by his grace. It is that gospel that breaks open the coldness and brings in the warmth. What we are talking about today may seem as foreign to you as the man on the other side of the moon. But in truth, it is normative Christianity. Everything else is humbug. So what did he teach? He taught also the holiness of the law of God. When you come to Romans 8, he says, the only thing that is opposed to the law of God is the carnal mind. He was an upholder of the moral law of God, but saw that the ceremonial law was finished. But he taught the resurrection of our Lord, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, becoming conformable unto his death, if at last I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, he said. He taught the atoning sacrifice of the Lord. Nobody taught it as clearly as Paul. He taught the resurrection. He taught the ascension. He taught the coming of Christ in power and great glory. He taught the second coming. And those teachings coming from the lips of a man who had seen Christ changed the world. There's never been a person like him. He was the most persecuted, and yet he was the most joyful of people. 
He said in the book of Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. And then he says, be content, be happy with what you have. I've learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. I can do all things through Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Incredible. Man, you think you got it hard? You think you really got it hard? Goodness, I think I got it hard. What have I got hard here? Only hard thing is, maybe the carpet could have been a, a millimeter thicker. Boy, isn't that a big problem we got here today in church? A man who was beaten, his wife left him, the church forsook him, when he came to his last hours after his trial before Nero. Where was the church? Hiding. He said, only Luke is with me. Where were the leaders? Hiding. He was persecuted by people in the Jewish religion and in the Christian church. They were called the Judaizers. They said, this man teaches too much about righteousness by faith. He's a heretic. And the Judaizers were largely responsible for the death of Paul. They pursued him all through his life. You can read it in the book of Galatians. You can read it in Acts chapter 15. And yet, even though he was alone, he was not alone. He was the most joyful of men, the most contented of men, the most happy of men because he had Christ. And that's what you and I need. We need to escape from the condition that we find ourselves in and have a religion that is great and dynamic and strong that we can say, I can do all things through Christ. I can rise above every difficulty and I will do what God has called me to do. I was not disobedient, he said, unto the heavenly vision. Not disobedient. I think of his last hours. We all like to think that if we're going to die, we're going to be surrounded by loved ones and the pastor's going to be there and, you know, it's going to be nice, nice as it can be and it should be. But he was handed over by the Jews and he ended up before Nero. Now Nero was one of the biggest tyrants, one of the most evil people that the world has ever seen. Just to show he didn't want to be answered back, he murdered his wife and then he murdered his mother. Somebody said he was every man's woman and every woman's man. Nero. He was only a young man. Paul went before him and gave such a splendid offense that he was acquitted. But then Nero, this complete pervert in every sense of the term, this maniac, this evil, this devil-inspired 
man, this Roman emperor, then decided he wanted to have something spectacular happen, and so he burned the city of Rome. And then he said, there's only one way out of this quandary. I will blame somebody. These accursed Christians. And they're led by a renegade with a hooked nose who's short, stooped, and bruised, battered. His name, I know him well, Paul. And so there is a second trial. And around that time, Paul writes to Timothy, a young preacher, and he writes these words. Please notice them. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Please turn in your Bibles. It's important. When you come to church, you don't come to church to read the church bulletin or to read a newspaper or to read letters. You come to church to listen to the Word of God. God does not ask a great deal of us when we come to church, but he expects that. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Thank you. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. You can be glad that you don't have Paul here today. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He writes these words as an old man, tired and possibly sick, and very cold, he writes from the city of Rome, awaiting execution. Verse 9, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Thank God for Luke. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak. You know why? He's cold. The cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments, bring my Bible, he says. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 21. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you. So do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. These are Gentiles, Romans. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you.
Here is an old man with white hair, what's left of his hair. He goes before Nero. There's no one there. Then a little while after this, he is taken out, we believe, three miles outside the city of Rome. Because he is a Roman citizen, he cannot be scourged anymore. All his scourgings were illegal, but the Jews did not respect Roman law. It says he was scourged of the Jews, not of the Romans. Here he is, the greatest of all Jews. Is it not strange that sometimes the greatest people who've made the greatest contribution receive the less appreciation? We should not be sorry for ourselves when we think of Jesus and Paul. Never should we think we're badly done by. He's taken out. Because he's a Roman citizen, he is granted the privilege of being beheaded. And that was a privilege. It sure beat crucifixion. Crucifixion was the worst of all torments that was reserved for our Lord. A man could hang on the cross for 10 days and still be alive. But because he was a Roman citizen, but a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was taken out and then a Roman soldier took out his sword. And Paul presented his neck. And he sleeps. And one day, Jesus is going to call him from the grave. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to say, Paul, Paul. I hope I'm there to meet him. A fanatic? No. Man who was dinky dye and genuine and true blue, the real thing. A man who thought nothing of suffering because he thought so much of Jesus. I thought last night, this tells me something. God has a plan for every life. Paul was God's anointed servant. What about you? God's got a plan for your life. Are you obedient to the heavenly vision? Do you know that God has called you? As you sit here in church today, do the words just go over your head? Are you in a state of rebellion? You're saying, I'm only here because I've got to be here. I just don't know what's going on. God has got a plan for your life if you'll open your ears and listen to his voice. Number two, God can change the worst sinner. It's nobody too hard. Paul, a murderer, a Pharisee, goodness. He saved him. If he can save the worst sinner, can he save you? Can he save me? Can he save that loved one that I've just about stopped praying for? Never give up on anybody because God doesn't. His grace is greater than every sin. He can save anybody. There's a third truth. There's no earthly power that can match the gospel. Not even the Roman soldiers. No, 
not even Nero. Little while after Nero had Paul beheaded, they came and got him. He died a horrible death and will awake to the judgment of damnation. Damnation awaits him. Salvation and glory await Paul. There's no earthly power that's a match for the gospel, not even the Roman Empire. When trouble comes and the scourging commences, he gives more grace. Paul had an infirmity. We think it had bad eyes. Reminder of what happened on the Damascus Road. And he said, I've asked you, Lord, several times to take this away. God didn't heal him. People say, but God always heals the sick. No, he doesn't. Didn't heal St. Paul. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. When trouble comes, the grace of God is more than sufficient. There's something else I want you to go out of this church with. And here it is. There is a reward for the faithful. It's for the faithful. Are you faithful? It's for those who are in Christ. It is for those who are obedient to the heavenly vision. It is for those who can say at the end of the road, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. For those, there is heaven and glory. It is for you if you will be what God wants you to be. Please kneel with me. Dear Father in heaven, we are challenged today by the life of this extraordinary man. An extraordinary man because he had an extraordinary faith in God. He had a faith that was so strong that even though he wasn't paid by the church, wasn't appreciated often by the church, he did what you called him to do. And he was driven out into very difficult places where he suffered for Christ and said, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Being beaten a light affliction? Goodness. Dear Father, in some way today, lift us out of the rut of denominationalism and the rut of the status quo and help us to be on fire for Christ and for his cause. Bless those who are taking small groups. I'm proud of them, Lord. We've got so many who are doing it. Bless them. Thank you that there's two people here at church today because of them. So bless this church and help us to capture again by your grace the spirit of the Apostle Paul. We pray this earnestly with the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.